I'm Trevor Page, and I'll be your moderator for today's session. For those of you that are new, we're very, very pleased to see a big crowd here today. What's that? You need my full introduction again, or? No, we'll carry on. For those of you that are new to SAGPA, we have a 30-minute presentation, followed by a buffet lunch, and then a 30-minute Q&A. And our session will end at 1.30. Please uh, switch off your cell phones or switch to silent. The presentation and the Q&A is recorded and will be available on the SAGPA website, which is www.sagpa.ca. The presentation is also recorded by Shaw Spotlight and will be broadcast several times a day over the next week at 11 a.m., at 12 noon, and at 9.30 p.m. Please put $14 in the little bowl on the tables in front of you. That's for the lunch, but if you're just having coffee, just $2 will do. And someone at the table, please count it to make sure the total is correct. So now to today's presentation. Is the Palestinian-Israeli struggle past the point of a peaceful and just solution? SAGPA has been following this seemingly insoluble situation for many years. Today's presentation will be the 12th we've heard over the last decade. Back in May, we heard from the representatives of the Calgary Jewish Federation and the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. The conclusion of that session was that it was most unlikely that there would be a settlement of the issue um, during the, under the current Israeli and Palestinian leadership. But since then, there have been important developments. President Trump at the UN last month has, for the first time, endorsed a two-state solution. At the same time, the US announced that it's ending its support to UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, which provides healthcare, education, food, and social services to over five million Palestinian refugees in the West Bank, Gaza, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. Our speakers today are Fouad Aboud and Mark Ayash. Fouad was born in Palestine. His family fled during the fighting in 1948, so that was very early on, and he grew up as a refugee in Lebanon. He studied law at UBC, and practiced law in Calgary until his retirement. Mark Ayash is an associate professor of sociology and the director of the John de Chastelin Peace Studies Initiative at Mount Royal University. He teaches and writes about social and political history theory, the study of violence, uh, decolonial movements, and the Palestinian-Israeli struggle. Please welcome our speakers to SAGPA.
Uh, thank you. Uh, first of all, thank you to the uh, uh, Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs uh, for organizing this event, for inviting myself and Fouad uh, to speak here today. And most importantly, thank you all uh, uh, for taking the time out of your day to uh, attend this talk. Um, my name is, is Mark Ayash, um, uh, as was uh, just mentioned. Um, in addition to uh, uh, the bio, I would like to add that I'm actually also a Palestinian. I was born and raised in Jerusalem. Uh, and I lived there uh, for the first 14 years of my life before immigrating to uh, Canada. So I was there in the uh, 80s uh, and up until 1993. So uh, I grew up under Israeli occupation in, in East Jerusalem. Um, that certainly lived experience of, of, the, of the conflict um, uh, has shaped much of my life and the direction of my studies. Um, uh, so I, I bring to bear into all of my uh, talks on this issue, both my lived experience and my scholarly work uh, on the conflict, uh, which I've been studying and continue to study over, uh, over my years uh, as a, as a uh, grad student and now as a, a professor at Mount Royal University. Um, and I do appreciate that you've had a lot of talks on this uh, important issue. Um, I'm sure a lot of you are, I, I'm not talking to a crowd that doesn't know anything about it, like a lot of my students, um, uh, <laughs> who don't know how to point it on the map yet. But, uh, um, so uh, it's good that I'm not talking to, I'm talking to people who, who are more familiar with it. Uh, but I'm still going to do a historical overview uh, um, in my talk, and, and I'll try as much as I can to get to some of the more contemporary questions. But if I don't, no big deal, there's always the Q&A for that. So. Um, and the reason why I want to go back over some of the historical overview is because there is a, still a lot of misunderstandings on some of the core issues within this uh, conflict. Uh, you do hear a lot in the media about this being somehow a religious conflict or, uh, or an ethnic conflict of some sort. And while there is some validity to those issues becoming big issues in this uh, struggle, especially from the 1970s onwards, they don't lie at the root of it. Um, and, and so that's why I like to go back to that uh, uh, history to kind of remind ourselves what is the issue here. Um, in addition, the other point that I think a lot of public discourse doesn't fully uh, um, um, explain, uh, particularly in North America, is that this is not a symmetric conflict. This is not a, a conflict between two sides that are equally balanced. Uh, um, uh, going at each other in that way. Uh, this is very much what is called in the literature an asymmetric conflict. You have a very powerful side, the Israelis, and a not so very powerful uh, Palestinian side. This is a critical element in understanding some of the dynamics that have happened in the past and that continue to uh, plague us today. Uh, there is a huge power differential in, in between the sides. The Israelis are much more powerful when it comes to their military. Well, they have a military, for starters. The Palestinians don't. Uh, uh, their uh, political power, their diplomatic power, and their economic power. Uh, um, on all those fronts, they are, they are far superior to the Palestinian side. Okay, so uh, the, the story of this conflict, again, it's not a 5,000-year-old conflict or a 2,000-year-old conflict or whatever, you know, people throw these numbers around. It's very much a modern conflict. It's about 100, 120, 130, there's different, you know, ranges there, but call it 150 tops uh, uh, year old conflict. Um, and a lot of its roots do stem in what was happening in Europe. Uh, um, in and around the 18, late 1800s and early 1900s, where we saw the birth of the Zionist movement. 
Um, and the Zionist movement obviously has a long history that I cannot cover, but in a nutshell, and everything that I'm going to talk about really is in a nutshell, um, uh, but in a nutshell, it was a response to European anti-Semitism. Uh, the Zionist movement basically said, we'll never, as the Jewish population in uh, Poland, in Russia, in Germany, in France, uh, Belgium, you name it, in Spain, certainly going back to the Spanish Inquisition in the 1400s, um, we're never going to be accepted here. Um, the the, the anti-Semitic structure of these societies are never going to actually accept us as <clears throat> full citizens of these countries, even though the Jewish communities themselves certainly always felt as Spanish as the non-Jewish Spanish uh, citizen or as German as the non-Jewish German citizen and so on. They, they always felt uh, that they belonged to those countries, and they did, uh, uh, as much as anyone else. Um, but they thought that this anti-Semitic uh, uh, embeddedness of the anti-Semitic sort of uh, 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 phenomenon within all the social structures and political structures and the economic structures is never going to go away. And the Zionist movement thought the only answer to that is to build a Jewish state. That's the only answer that we have to, to this uh, phenomenon. It wasn't, by the way, it is always worth to remember that uh, it wasn't the only solution that, that, that the Jewish community uh, uh, proposed. In fact, the Zionist movement was not a very popular uh, uh, choice in the beginning. Most uh, uh, Jewish uh, uh, residents of all those countries thought, why would I leave? Why would I, why would I leave Germany? I'm, I'm, I'm just as German as, as, as Hans over there, you know, um, or whoever. Um, why would I leave? Why would I leave my country, my land? Uh, so it wasn't actually an easy sell uh, uh, in the beginning. Uh, um, uh, but regardless, uh, it did gain momentum. Uh, the pogroms, uh, uh, which were a horrific precursor to the, obviously, the horrors of the Holocaust uh, uh, in Eastern Europe, were, were a driving force behind the, uh, uh, the rising popularity of the ideas within Zionism. Um, Obviously, to build the Jewish state, they needed uh, a piece of land to build it on. Um, uh, there, were other, there, there were many options that were considered at the time. Uh, eventually, uh, uh, the British mandate of Palestine became the favored uh, um, option. Uh, the only problem was that it was already populated. The, the, Palestine was not an empty land. Uh, there were Palestinians who had lived on that land for uh, thousands of years, um, and, and in fact, all sorts of uh, identities and, and ethnicities and, and so on have lived on that land for, for, for many years. Regardless, it was not empty, regardless of the Zionist slogan at the time, a land without a people for a people without a land. Um, uh, it was not an empty land. And the Zionist leaders knew this. Um, and uh, um, to make room for the creation of the Jewish state, the Isra Israeli state, um, the people that already lived on that land had to be removed. Um, and this happened in and around 1948. Uh, there were other initiatives before that, but the majority of the Palestinian population that were expelled from their land uh, happened in and around the 1948 war, which you'll hear uh, a, a personal experience of that uh, from Fuad in a minute. Um, the numbers basically about 55% uh, of the total Palestinian population in the British Mandate of Palestine were expelled from their homes. Um, not a small uh, proportion. These are, this is the 55% that today makes up the, the Palestinian refugee uh, uh, community uh, that lives across the world. Uh, some in Lebanon, some in Jordan, uh, other parts of the Arab world, in Chile, North America, Europe, and so on. 
the, the refugee uh, uh, community, the Palestinian refugee community, mainly starts to stem from, from that 1948 war. And as well, there's, you, you also have the uh, uh, internal refugees, so people who were moved from certain parts of what became Israel into the Gaza Strip, for example. Uh, so, so there was many refugees that, that were moved into those other areas within the territories that remained under Arab uh, uh, rule, uh, whether it was the Jordanians or the Egyptians. Um, and, and the core of the problem is precisely that. Everything else stems from that moment of expulsion. And in fact, when you start to look at the problem of expulsion, you start to see that it's not only the Palestinians that have that experience, um, that the Jewish community from Europe also themselves experienced a certain kind of expulsion. Again, a lot of the Jewish Poles or the Jewish Germans or Jewish French didn't want to leave those lands. And in fact, most of them, especially the, the Western European uh, Jewish community, did not want to go to Palestine or Israel. Uh, they moved to North America. Um, so, so there was an expulsion of the Jewish community from within Europe that lies at the root of this in the, in the, in the uh, uh, 1800s and 1900s that then is experienced by the Palestinians in their uprooting in 1948 and beyond. So to me, the, the core issue here is displacement of people from the land, is, is expulsion. Um, it, it, in a way, it's a shared problem between the Palestinian and the Jewish communities, experienced in varying degrees and in different geographical locations, no doubt. But there are, in fact, many similarities in the structure of the experience of both communities when it comes to the issue of expulsion and displacement from land. And to me, if we don't address that core issue, then yes, peace and justice will always be out of reach. Um, and this is why we have to kind of swim past and, and weed through a lot of the other issues that have come up throughout the history of the struggle that sort of keep away from our sight this core problem. So when I hear, uh, um, you know, we can have a peace negotiations, but the refugees, that's off the table. Uh, Jerusalem is off the table. Well, then what's there to talk about? Um, uh, there's not, we're not talking about the core problem anymore. Uh, we're talking about some kind of other thing here that is not going to resolve the actual issue. Um, so any, for me, any serious negotiation, any serious settlement must directly address this root problem of the issue, which is the expulsion of people from land, and a way to redress that. Um, and we can, we can talk about some of those specifics, by the way, because uh, um, uh, redressing the problem of expulsion doesn't mean everybody comes back. Uh, not every refugee wants to go back. Um, um, some do, some don't, some want reparations. Uh, so there, are, there we can get into the, the sort of more practical, specific details. Uh, but we need to have that conversation. That conversation isn't even being had. Excellent. Um, and and uh, uh, that, that takes me back to my own experience growing up, uh, uh, like I said, under occupation. Um, I remember, I was very young, but I still remember uh, the breakout of the Intifada in 1987. So I would have been eight, eight years old when that happened. Uh, I distinctly remember a change uh, in our lives um, as children, we, we used to have Israeli friends growing up. That wasn't a hard thing for, you know, some people from out here think, you know, these are so separated people culturally and ethnically and religiously, there's, which is nonsense. Um, it's, it's, it's actually 
very easy for Israelis and Palestinians to get along on all sorts of cultural issues, uh, even religious issues, uh, and so on. So it was kind of a, a normal thing for us to play with uh, Israeli kids that we were friends with, not all of them. I'm not gonna try to paint a, a picture here of a happy uh, a coexistence, it wasn't. Uh, there were tense moments even before the Intifada, but it was normal for us growing up with uh, um, uh, you know, Israeli friends. Uh, um, it's not uncommon. Um, um, the Intifada certainly made that more difficult. Um, it, it, uh, um, once the Intifada started, uh, you know, checkpoints started to be erected everywhere. Movement became more difficult. When we would go and visit our uh, um, Uncle Jacob in, in, in Haifa, um, he would still take us to the soccer game to watch his son play, but he would say, don't speak in Arabic when you're here today, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, so we would speak in English instead. Uh, those things started to change. And, and, and I think, sadly, they've, that, ex that has accelerated into a, into a very extreme position uh, these days. A lot of my, my, my father's uh, older Israeli friends tell him, you know, those days are gone. There's not that much interaction happening on the, on the, the street level anymore. Um, but nonetheless, even if that is the case on a sort of a daily interaction piece, I do still have hope in a lot of the grassroots activism that happens in the region. I would agree that uh, the political uh, leaderships are not uh, uh, well positioned to, to get us anywhere good these days. Uh, but again, when we talk about that, we do have to keep in mind that the Israelis hold a lot more cards than the Palestinian leadership does. Um, but regardless, uh, there are a lot of grassroots efforts uh, that are undertaken on the ground whether it's lawyers, Israeli lawyers working with Palestinian lawyers, Israeli doctors working with Palestinian doctors on, on healing the, the, the wounded Palestinians, or the lawyers, the Israeli lawyers working with the Palestinian lawyers working on uh, um, uh, protecting the vulnerable uh, uh, Palestinian rights, um, if they exist at all, um, and, and other peace activist movements that are there working with each other on, on all sorts of levels um, that we shouldn't lose sight of. It, it, is, it is a dire, dire situation. There's no doubt about that. We need to be upfront about how difficult the obstacles are, how big the challenges are, and that we're not heading in the right direction. Uh, uh, but we also need to keep ourselves motivated that, you know, that there is something still worth fighting for, worth struggling for there, that there are some people on the ground that are still taking on the good fight. Uh, um, and, 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 and in that vein, uh, we shouldn't just take all these obstacles as the final, uh, our, our final verdict on, on, on the issue where we start to go, well, it's never gonna get resolved, so what's the point? That's not a point that we, uh, that we can afford to, to, to reach, I think. And, and with that, I'll, I'll invite Fouad up uh, to speak about his own experience there, uh, in, especially in 1948. Well, it, it's a pleasure to be here in Lethbridge. Uh, we're happy there wasn't a big snowfall on the way down. <laughs> and uh, thank you, Knud and Sakpa, for inviting us. I hope... Uh, I can shed some light on, on, on the problem. Now, I'm a lawyer, so I'm going to talk about law, but law is important in this problem because it is part of the overall scheme of what is happening there. So I'm going to be talking about the laws of Israel and how they affect the Palestinians. I have 10 minutes. So I'm not going to cover much ground, but I'm not going to bore you with the details of the law. 
um, Adala, which is an Israeli NGO, Palestinian Israeli NGO, estimates that there are over 65 laws within Israel that discriminate about on the, uh, on the Palestinians. Now, the first thing to realize about Israel is, unlike Canada and the US, it does not have a constitution. The constitution is, in, is in, uh, designed to bind the government from doing certain things. So there, is, there isn't that. Uh, you can look up the website for more details on this. I'm going to start with my seventh birthday. What we are looking here is a land title from Palestine. Now I'll show you a detail of this. If you look here, see it says Government of Palestine and Certificate of Registration of a land in Haifa on Mount Carmel. Now, this was a seventh, my seventh birthday. It was registered. My father gave it to me. It was registered in my name, says Fuad, son of Theodore Aboud. So that, that's the land that was given to me in Haifa on October, October 19, can't read. Forty-five. Thank you. Now, when Israel declared itself as an independent state, it said it will ensure complete equality of social and political rights to all its inhabitants, irrespective of religion or race. Now, that sounded really good, but unfortunately, there was never made into law. Instead, the first thing the Israeli the government the, was it, that the Israeli government did was to declare a state of emergency. Uh, it was supposed to pass a constitution and under resolution 181, which was a partition resolution, that nobody was supposed to be evicted, no land was supposed to be confiscated. Instead, the first act that the government did was to declare a state of emergency, which actually the state of emergency continues to today. Now, the reason for the emergency is because it enabled the government to revive the the defense emergency regulations uh, that were passed by the British government, British mandate government, to fight Jewish terrorism. And the last act of the British mandate government was to discontinue that. So the first thing the government did of Israel was to pass the emergency regulations. These give wide powers to the government which continue to today, that all Palestinians were placed under military law, and this continued until 1966. Uh, 
This allowed the government for, to give, uh, for administrative arrest, uh, closure and home destruction, uh, banish and deport people, and censorship and restrict travel. Now, most of these continue to this day. Now, the second, in early 1950s, Israel passed three laws. The absentee property law, the nationality law, and the law of return. I'll su summarize them for you very quickly. The absentee property law basically confiscated the property of most Palestinians, certainly most of the Palestinian refugees, it just took their property away. The nationality law stripped them of their nationality, so they became stateless, and many of them continue to be stateless today. And the law of return gave any person of Jewish descent, of Jewish religion, the right to come to, Israel, to the new land. So the absentee property law can be, was really a tool that was used to steal the land of the Palestinians, not just the land. For example, my, my father had his bank account frozen. He couldn't get his bank. Some of the furniture that we didn't have with us was taken over. And the way the absentee property law was made, it wasn't outright confiscation it, on the surface. It appeared that there was going to be a custodian who was going to take care of the property, but the custodian actually was just an arm of the Israeli government. And in fact, there are about uh, some Israeli citizens, some Palestinians who became Israeli citizens whose property was confiscated as well. And there's a legal term in Israel for them. They're called present absentees. Uh, and about 70% of the land of Israel, to, this is we're talking about Israel proper, is, is absentee land. Uh, the second thing to know about the Israeli system of law is it has, it distinguishes between citizenship and nationality. So citizenship gives you the right to a passport, gives you the right, right to vote and to run for elected position. But nationality, which is reserved only to Jews, gives you the right of return and grants you privileges that are reserved only for Jews. So unlike Canada, where there's no distinction between citizenship or nationality, everybody is equal, at least in theory. There, in theory, the people are inherently unequal. And this is from Haaretz, which is an Israeli newspaper. There are about 135 different nationalities that Israel can register on identity cards. And you have to remember one more thing about Israel. Everybody is required, every adult is required to carry ID. 
with them and to show it upon demand. So for example, you have nationalities like Assyrian, Samaritan, Druze, which is a sect of uh, essentially Islam, uh, Hebrew, and Jewish and Arab. Uh, but the main, the main differences are between Jews and Arabs. So the Palestinians were, became Arabs and unless they became Druze. Now, one other law I'd like to point out is uh, a law, a basic law that means it's, uh, it's supposed to be like a constitution, um, is that a person is not allowed to run for, for elected office if he, does not, if he advocates equality for everybody. In other words, he disputes that Israel is a Jewish state. And this raises two questions. Is what, what does it mean to say it's a Jewish state? I mean, states don't have religion. Canada is not a Christian state. Uh, what, what, what exactly does it mean? I think this requires careful thought. The second thing, is it possible for a state to be Jewish and democratic when about 20% of the population of the state is non-Jewish? Uh, Israel, unfortunately, has been moving further and further to away from liberal thoughts. So the latest law that was passed was the uh, nation state law this was passed this past July, that Israel is a state, nation state of the Jewish people, that self-determination in Israel is unique to Jews, even though 20% of the population of Israel is non-Jewish. It removed Arabic, which along with English was an official language. This was a hand down from the British mandate and Israel will be open to Jewish immigration. What, now, what happened to my land? Uh, in December 48, Israel sold 20% of the land, Palestinian land, to the Jewish National Fund, and then a further 20% was sold in, uh, in 1950. Now, does the JNF, on the land? I don't know. I tried to find out, but I, I didn't have the opportunity. But most likely it does. Um, and I'd like to end on a, on a particular uh, photo that's uh, sort of to illustrate that there is a human aspect to what's going on. I mean, we can argue here or People can talk about Jews, non-Jews, uh, apartheid, all that. But there, there is a real human tragedy behind this. So I will end on this one photo of my parents. My parents, this was probably around 1930. That's my mother and father there. And they uh, did a tour in Europe. And I believe this was taken, obviously it's in a zoo. 
I believe it was the Berlin Zoo, but I'm not sure. So I'm doing this to show you that there is, there is a human side to this that we must always keep track of. Thank you very much. Uh, just one more thing. I have a handout here for further reading for those who, of you who are interested. And uh, I just brought 20 copies because I don't think there'd be many people. So <laughs> but uh, I, if, if anybody is interested, I can send you it to you by email. So I'll put it right here for those who are interested. Thank you. Okay, well, thanks very much. Now we're going to break for lunch. Please let uh, the speaker and those at the top table get to the buffet first. And we'll see you back at 1 o'clock.